Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. This year, with so many different activities getting shut down, one type of activity has remained open for most people to enjoy, which is exploring the great outdoors. However, with so many people heading outside who haven't had much experience in these wild places, it can cause quite a bit of issues, from destruction of natural habitats to increased search and rescue calls. What's up, everyone? I'm Brian Carroll, and I'm here to help people move more, eat well, and be adventurous. And today, I have Jonathan Jarotsky, who is a wilderness ranger for the National Park Service, on the show. His passion is to protect these parks for this and future generations. So we'll be diving into different ways we can minimize our impact while exploring these beautiful places. Now, I'll be honest. Some of these questions, we both are stumped on what the best solutions are. The Park Service for years has been wanting more people coming to the parks to see their beauty, which helps give them reason to protect these places. But no one expected it to happen all at once. And while it is great that so many people are interested in these places now, it is tough to come up with ideas on how to completely minimize human impact. I will have resources in the show notes at summitforwellness.com slash 126 about leave no trace principles and a news story about how social media has impacted different regions like Horseshoe Bend. And the best we can come up with is to educate people as much as possible. Also, if you are heading outside, Make sure you are prepared for any type of situations and always pack the 10 essentials. Even on day hikes, we always have backups in our packs for makeshift shelters and warmth, just in case something happens. We've been on backpacking trips where the weather changed from the 90s to snow overnight, and the mountains are unpredictable. And right now, I live in an area that rarely sees helicopters, In the last two weeks, I have had search and rescue helicopters fly overhead every single day. So be careful out there and always be prepared. And also a quick thank you to Jonathan for helping to fight the wildfires that are all over the West Coast. He did this interview right after he got back from a couple weeks in the field, and he was scheduled to go back out a couple days after this recording. Now let's dive into my conversation with Jonathan. I am here with Jonathan Jarodsky, who is with the National Park Service, and it was uh, about two months ago now that I ran into Jonathan when we were hiking around in uh, Mount Rainier National Park, and uh, just his passion about uh, the park and uh, the impact of people going through and all that type of stuff just really caught my attention. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. And... um. What I wanted to know is what got you into being with the national parks and how long have you been with the national parks? Yeah, well, um, I grew up outside Chicago and with a family that was pretty active outdoors. Uh, did a lot of camping trips with them. And um, growing up outside Chicago, I kind of just noticed uh, the urban sprawl that was taking place where outside my neighborhood, there was like a forest I used to play in and that forest quickly turned into a subdivision and um, kind of just realized that, you know, wilderness areas or, I mean, that's not really a wilderness area, but uh, natural landscapes, they're not always promised. And when I was in high school, I was on this Boy Scout trip up in the Boundary Waters 
uh, it was like a two week trip and I kind of just had this aha moment. You know, I was trying to, I was like, what am I, I'm in high school. I'm supposed to go to college. What do I want to do when I grow up? What do I want to study in college? And when I was out there, I was like, you know, this is it, you know, protect wilderness areas. It was just such a special experience for me that I was like, I want to make sure that these places exist. I want to help protect them. So then I did a little research and I found the Student Conservation Association and I went to Yellowstone for a month as a, on a high school work crew. And then through that, I kind of learned about uh, what, you know, being a backcountry ranger. And that really just sounded like an awesome job to be able to patrol the backcountry and help protect the resources and help protect people. Um, shortly after that, uh, I kind of got recruited by my college. I went to Northland College in northern Wisconsin, which is a um, environmental liberal arts school. And I got a degree in environmental studies with an emphasis in ecological restoration. And in order to graduate, though, I needed an internship. So I applied through the SCA again. And uh, Mount Rainier picked me up as a volunteer backcountry ranger. And that was in 2006. And I've been at Mount Rainier ever since, uh, working seasonally. Yeah, Mount Rainier is a little bit different than Chicago, isn't it? Yeah, just a bit different. Uh, <laughs> we had a, a ski hill outside uh, or near where I lived, and it was an old landfill. <laughs> That's the kind of topography we had over there. So. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot different than here. So um, uh, before we dive into more about the national parks, can you just talk about, uh, you know, Mount Rainier itself? How much different is that compared to sh like what you see in Chicago? Like you mentioned a ski hill. Mount Rainier is not really a hill. So talk about that a little bit. Oh, it's just it's a big difference. Um, you know, the trees here are humongous. Uh, the mountains you know, the, we have a glaciated volcano here, which is nothing like you'd find out, out in the Midwest. Um, and the snow, uh, we get quite a bit of snow out, you know, in Chicago, but snow around here lasts through in, into July, and uh, it can snow again in September. So much shorter season, summer season up here. But um, yeah, everything's bigger out here. Bigger trees, yep. bigger rivers, bigger, bigger ski hills. <laughs> Yeah, and one thing about Mount Rainier is pretty much anywhere in Washington, if you have a clear day, you can see Mount Rainier. And it's what, 14,411 feet? Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Which if you're in Colorado or something, that might not sound you know, too crazy to you because you have a lot of 14ers. But in Washington, you're going from sea level to 14,400 feet. So that's a big difference. It's pretty dramatic, that's for sure. Yeah. So... um. You talked about, you know, wanting to conserve land and try to figure out how to help with that. Can you talk about what is the purpose of national parks? And do you know how many national parks there are in the U.S.? Yeah, well, I guess we can just start with the mission statement of the National Park Service, which pretty sums it up. It's uh, the National Park Service preserves unimpaired the natural and cultural resources and values of the national park system for the enjoyment, education and inspiration of this and future generations. So yeah, we're just setting aside land, um, whether it's wilderness or a historic site, uh, just to be left alone, uh, left to be enjoyed so uh, future generations can enjoy the same thing we're enjoying. And yeah, some of it's set aside for wilderness and wildlife, the, the ecosystems that are involved, and others uh, cultural significance sites. Um, and there are 419 national park sites, uh, about wow. 84 million acres. Jeez. 419. How many does Washington have? I know Olympics, North Cascades, Mount Rainier. Is there more than that? There has to be. 
Yeah, there's a, well, they have an office for uh, Klondike uh, Gold Rush National Monument, <laughs> National Park. Uh, it's a site up in uh, uh, Skagway, Alaska, but Seattle was a jumping off point for that. So um, but I think, yeah, just the three big ones, the national parks are, yeah, Olympic, North Cascades, and Mount Rainier. And then what is the largest national park? Uh, I want to say Death Valley is the largest. Death Valley? Yeah. I'd have to, I'd have to look into that. Okay. So um, with the invention of the national parks, that came from, was it Roosevelt that in, installed that? or Actually, uh, Woodrow Wilson, he, he signed an act that created the National Park Service um, in, in 1916. August 25th, 1916, um, is the Organic Act, which purpose was to conserve the scenery and the natural historic objects and wildlife and, you know, preserve it for future generations. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with you wanting to preserve these wild places, and a lot of times they are wild, right? We're coming into a natural territory of other animals or uh, just species in general, and we're mm -hmm. kind of encroaching into that space. Uh, but one of the things about that is, you know, the national parks, they create uh, dedicated trails, but then people kind of start to create their own type of systems in there as well. So when it comes down to that, do is it better for um, you know the population to be going in and following the dedicated trails, or is it okay if you kind of go off trail a little bit? Yeah, I think there's a time and place for both. Uh, I'd say you really want to know kind of where you're going before you get out there, and what kind of impacts you're going to have. So uh, with us, um, at Mount Rainier, we have some really fragile subalpine ecosystems, and it's a volcanic ash composition soil, and the vegetation has really shallow roots. So going off trail, uh, if you're not staying on durable surfaces, you can quickly damage uh, that ecosystem and denude that vegetation. And you know, a couple footsteps off trail uh, kind of impacts the area, and the next people come through, they kind of see it's already impacted, and then it just grows and grows and grows. Um, but there's definitely safe ways of going off trail. Uh, like I mentioned, traveling on durable surfaces. So staying on large rocks, staying on logs or on deep snow, um, or looking at, you know, kind of assessing the vegetation, seeing what can handle uh, more impacts, you know, like grasses, they can, are way more durable than something else, say like mountain heather, which is a kind of a coarse woody plant. When you step on that, it just snaps and breaks. And a plant like that, I've heard it takes, about seven years for it to grow one inch uh, when you're wow. up in that subalpine. Yeah. So, um, but people, you know, you should get off trail sometimes and really go explore and, you know, get out there and test yourself. But you also have to, you know, think where you're at in some places just may not be the best choice. If you're going to like a high use area in a fragile ecosystem, it's, it's best to stay on trail in my opinion. Yeah, and if you do go off trail um, or just in general, there are some like leave no trace principles that are really good to follow. Can you kind of walk us through what those LNT principles are? Well, there's seven LNT principles uh, plan ahead and prepare, travel and camp on durable surfaces, dispose of human waste properly, leave what you find, minimize campfire impacts, respect wildlife, and be considerate of others. And so, yeah, when you're going off trail, uh, 
you want to plan ahead and prepare where you're going. And that means just, uh, you know, knowing like what, what's the right kind of equipment that you want. Um, you know, if you're early season trails might be really, really muddy, really wet. So making sure you have good footwear where you can walk through those wet areas. So you're not going off trail and doing damage. Um, knowing the recommendations and rules before you get out there can really help you protect those areas. But as far as going off, uh, off trail, and practicing leave no trace. You know, like I mentioned, those durable surfaces is a really big thing. Uh, you can also consider when you go off trail to go off trail in one location and then come back on trail a different location. That way you're not walking, uh, creating a new path. And if you're traveling in a group, uh, instead of walking single file, you kind of walk side by side and that will lessen your impact. Oh, that's good to know. So try to spread out um, what you're trampling on. Mm-hmm. Now there's... Um, Places like, um, I'm trying to think, like Mesa Verde, uh, that would probably be a little bit more durable surfaces. Um, is there different regions of the country that typically have more durable sur- uh, surfaces, or does that just de- uh, change from location to location? Yeah, location to location, for sure. And that's why you really want to plan ahead and prepare and kind of learn uh, before you go out. You go to places in like the Southwest, and they have a cryptobiotic soil. And, you know, one footstep on that really damages that. And that's, uh, it's kind of a living soil. And uh, it's really important for like water retention and erosion control. And you can really damage that really quickly. But um, yeah, I mean, rocks and gravel, deep snow, those are kind of your typical durable surfaces. Um, Just staying on trail, the trail that's established is, is a durable surface. Right. And then uh, one of the things I was talking to you about before we started recording is uh, last weekend we went to go backpacking. And by the time we got to the trailhead, um, there was about 200 cars and everybody was going a different direction than we planned on. But um, and every single person we saw was backpacking and the direction they were all going is to one lake. So that many people going to one destination that only typically has like three established campsites um, was going to to happen is people are just going to pick random spots and throw up their tent because they put in all the effort to get there. So what can we do, especially in a time like right now where there's not much to do except for getting outside, mm-hmm. what can we do to limit our impact and maybe make different choices if places are busy? Yeah, uh, it it's absolutely getting really busy out there. And um Unfortunately, people kind of are on the same schedules. You know, most people just have the weekends off. But if you can plan your your camping trips for time of less high use, that would be ideal. But not everyone has, you know, that option. But really planning ahead and preparing, of, uh, you know, before you get there. There's so much information available. And make sure you're going to the source. You know, if you want to come to Mount Rainier National Park, go to our website. You know, our park spends a lot of energy on putting out really good information on our website, which will help you plan your trip. And so a lot of these places, you know, they require permits. Uh, so you want to make sure that you're getting your permit beforehand. And the reason, you know, we have permits is so we don't get that overcrowding. So there isn't that impact on the ecosystem. Um, and also there's a certain social impact. You know, a lot of us go into the wilderness and we want to be in you know, the wilderness. We don't want to be you know, camping up against a whole bunch of other people and hearing parties going on. So 
we do limit the amount of people that go into our backcountry as far as for overnight use, but that's just to maintain the integrity of your wilderness experience. Um, but just planning ahead, you know, and uh, doing the research on, you know, what's, what's needed uh, before you get out there and, you know, avoiding times of high use, which, like I said, can be really hard for most of us who only you know, have the weekends off. But. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people aren't just getting out to national parks. That is one area, but we also have national forest areas. Uh, we have state lands, all sorts of stuff that people can get out to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it would be great if people could spread out and maybe it's just an isolated area out here in Washington where we're seeing a lot. Um, or maybe it's happening all over the place. I don't know. Uh, so uh, you, when you and I uh, ran into each other, you were talking about the impact of creating trails and cutting off um, different sections of all this acreage that's preserved. So uh, you kind of drew us a diagram and you showed if you cut a trail or a road or anything through here, then you're basically putting people through this area, which we all have smells and animals can smell us from whatever distance away, but it can impact the environment in a a greater distance because of our unintentional impact on the animals. So can you talk about um, that a little bit deeper, kind of like what you talked to us about, and then how that also plays into people just cutting their own trails and um, establishing trails that shouldn't be there? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, if you look at a map of Mount Rainier, it's just pretty much a giant square and it's surrounded by national forests and some private land and outside the park, you know, it's, it's different, it's different rules. So there are clear cutting, there's hunting, there's all kinds of things, which doesn't, you know, it, those areas, some of them are designated wilderness, but there's, you know, different impacts out there. Um, essentially Mount Rainier is kind of like an island, a bio island, uh, geography kind of so to speak and what we've done though is we've we've fragmented it like you were mentioning you know we've put roads through it we've put in trails and we've fragmented the habitat that's already out there um and loss of habitat is the greatest threat to any species including our own um and essentially mount rainier is kind of a wildlife refuge so when you start fragmenting it with trails you know you're absolutely right we we leave a lot you know we leave scent behind and we're essentially scaring these animals and we're stressing them out or we're habituating them and food conditioning them. If you, you know, one of the important things is proper food storage. Um, and at my park, at Mount Rainier Park, at our park, uh, we have bear poles in the back country, which is essentially just a, a pole on the ground uh, where you can hang your food uh, anytime your food's not with you. A big problem we have here is people think that's just at night. Um, so they'll leave their backpacks unattended or even within their campsite, they might leave their food unattended. And just a few weeks ago, uh, some folks were camping at one of the more popular campsites and they were in their site, but their food was on the other side of the site, you know, away from them. And a mama bear and her cubs, they stole their food. And this bear was rewarded with salami and cheese and almond butter, just you know, a super delicious spread. And now we have this bear and her two cubs who have just been lingering around in the campsite and, you know, they're becoming habituated. And we've been up there trying to do some adversive bear conditioning, um, trying to scare it away. Um, but 
that's really bad uh, for animals to start getting into human food. Uh, it alters their behavior, alters their diet. And you don't really know what's happening, too, when you're going to give some of these animals food. And I see people uh, feeding gray jays, for instance. And gray jays are a member of the corvid family, uh, which are essentially, you know, like crows and ravens and that kind of thing. They're really smart, but they're aggressive birds. So when you start feeding these animals, feeding the gray jays, you're concentrating these gray jays in that area. And then those birds, they prey on the more timid songbirds and they'll prey on their nests. So you're essentially driving those songbirds from that area um, because we have fed these animals. And, you know, with the trails that lead us out in the wilderness, we're concentrating our that use there. So all those animals are supposed to be there. Their behavior is being altered by just us being there or us feeding the animals. Um, you know, another thing was with the gray jays is they don't essentially eat all their food right away. They'll cache their food in tree bark. Um, thousands of locations. They're year-round residents. So in the wintertime, they always have a food source because they cache their food. Now, if we're giving them Cheetos or something like that, that food can spoil their food cache. Um, and same with like the ground squirrels and chipmunks, you know, uh, they cache their food as well. So by giving them, you think you're doing well by giving them some of our junk food, but really you might be destroying their food supply for the wintertime. I didn't even think about that in spoiling their food. That's that's really interesting and very sad, actually. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, everyone has a, I see it all too often, just, you know, Instagram photos of, uh, you know, people feeding the gray jays. And uh, it, in one way, you, they are getting connected with nature and, you know, which is great. But it's, I don't think that a lot of people realize the adverse impacts that they have by feeding the wildlife. So uh, my recommendation is keep your food secured. If it's not on your back or immediately in front of you under your command, making sure it's a properly stored in um, a bear can or hung from a, a bear pole or in a bear locker. Uh, and that's not just for the bears, but it's for all the other critters too. Yeah, so that brings up an interesting point. As our populations increase, and uh, we start taking over more and more land. Um, are are we going to start having more of this interaction between us and the wildlife? And uh, do you think it's going to become uh, such a problem at a point where, I mean, like the gray jays are going to be able to get food from us whenever because of we're just all over the place. And we're, I mean, we're kind of slobs. We leave food all over, we drop food, whatever. Um, what type of issues do you see coming from that? Uh, I mean, like I said earlier, just kind of loss of appropriate habitat. Um, it's animals being habituated, food conditioned, uh, just not doing their normal behavior. Um, but ultimately is, you know, the more we spread out, the more we are destroying habitat and healthy ecosystems and just, uh, you know, taking away uh, important places for these critters to live. So just seeing probably like a decline in species. Yeah. Um, we were in Yellowstone a couple of weeks ago and, or about a month, month and a half ago. And um, they have signs talking about what can happen when, if uh, bears get to your food. I think it's actually in their little map pack that they hand you when you enter the park. But they're talking about, you know, if they get so accustomed to going up to human campsites or anything like that to get food, then those become problem bears. And uh, 
the things you have to do for problem bears is probably not what most people would like to see done to them. So yeah, no, absolutely. And it's about altering our behavior, not so much altering the animal's behavior. You know, we want to make sure people are practicing safe uh, food storage. You know, in Yellowstone, they've got grizzly bears and they've been known to, you know, they have taken some people out because they had food in their tent uh, or, you know, a Snickers bar in their pocket. I've heard that story before. Um, luckily out here, uh, at least at Mount Rainier, you know, we only have black bears and these black bears are, they're mostly, you know, they're omnivores, but they mostly have a vegetarian diet. Uh, so they typically don't want anything to do with us. They're just out scavenging, eating roots, eating flowers, you know, digging up anthills. But once they start associating camps or people with having you know, a food, um, that's yeah, when we have the problem bears and that's, they will actually get aggressive at that point. Um, mm. Otherwise, yeah, if they're just doing their natural behavior, they don't want anything to do with us. Right. Perfect. Um, yeah. Another thing that we saw while we were in Yellowstone is there was a, a teenage bear right off the side of the road. And of course, over in Yellowstone, if you've ever been there, people always stop and they want to take photos. Yeah. Um, but what happened is people jumped out of their vehicles with their dogs and they're within a hundred feet, if not less of the bear and their dogs are going nuts mm -hmm. as the bear is trying to run away. And it's panicked because now it's cut off by cars and it's trying to figure out where to go. And it's got dogs barking at them. And it was, it was a bad situation. I mean, that's definitely how a lot of these bear attacks happen um, with the black bears, especially as they're instigated by, by dogs. And then, dogs trying to protect their people or the people are trying to protect their dog from the bear. But yeah, it's no bueno. <laughs> no, um, not at all. And I understand like, you know, if, if you grow up in a city type uh, environment and you don't really know how things will react and you drive to a beautiful place like Mount Rainier or Yellowstone or anything like that. And you have your animals with you. Like, I know it's not the first thing on your mind, but it's definitely it impacts things, right? It definitely makes a difference. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I try coming with the mindset too that I don't know where these people are coming from. Um, it's public land. They absolutely should be there. I'm happy for them to be there, but not everyone has the same background um, as far as understanding leave no trace or outdoor ethics. And um, I mean, I remember growing up where our my leave no trace training was uh, you know, take only photos and leave only footprints. And now I'm like, don't even leave footprints, you know? Um, and most people just think, yeah, like leave no trace is just packing out everything you pack in. And it's, it's more than that. But yeah, with the, with the animal thing too, it's a big part of it's just planning ahead and preparing, um, knowing the rules and re uh, regulations before you go out to one of these wilderness areas. We specifically do not allow dogs on our trails. Um, again, because, you know, we're concentrating people into these areas and when your dog goes out on trail with you, it's going to mark its territory. You know, it's going to pee. Um, and dogs and wolves share 99% of the same uh, DNA. Um, they're, you know, dogs are just domestic wolves. And so when your dog marks, uh, marks its territory, the animals who are supposed to be there, they smell a predator in the area and they'll flee the area. And so... Again, we're fragmenting this habitat and essentially losing habitat by, you know, concentrating dog smells in these areas. Uh, you know, 
about a month ago, I was up at one of our subalpine meadows and a person with their dog came in. And before they got there, there's all these marmots just in the, you know, in the meadow, eating lupin, just hanging out. And as soon as that dog showed up, they, they, they screamed, they gave their whistles, uh, their alerts, and they all, they fled the area. Um, but that's just, you know, one example. So, um, but yeah, it's all about, you know, us concentrating uh, our use in certain areas and really having an adverse effect on the ecosystem without typically knowing what you're doing. Yep. And it all comes back to education, which is one of the things that you practice a lot out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's one of the biggest parts of my job is just chatting with people and trying to trying to educate specifically like leave no trace yep well um jonathan is there any other things that you want to touch on with uh leave no trace and how we can minimize our impact as we go and explore these beautiful areas um i would just suggest everyone to to look into leave no trace uh and kind of you know do their own research but you know, like I, I keep mentioning, the biggest thing is just planning ahead and preparing. Um, you can really minimize your impact out there just by being prepared. Uh, you know, if, if you're lost, for instance, you can cause a cri- quite an impact uh, if you have, you know, 100 people out there searching for you with helicopters coming in. Um, so, yeah, just really planning ahead and preparing. Um, and we can go over all the different principles if you want, and we can talk about them specifically. But uh, I think the big one is just uh, planning ahead and preparing. Yep. Yeah, I know SAR Search and Rescue has been very busy this year trying to find lost people. So, uh, yeah, definitely know where you're going. Um, the Leave No Trace principles, a lot of that can be found at, is it lnt.org? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's a great resource. A lot of good information on there. Perfect. And we'll have that in the show notes so that people can go over and learn more about um, just all the different principles within Leave No Trace so that, you know, you can go into the outdoors knowing as much information and education as possible. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. Uh, People can find more about what you and the National Park Service is doing at nps.gov. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about LNT and just helping people to understand more about how to properly go out into the outdoors and leave minimal impacts. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I hope everyone gets out there and has a great time and stays safe and enjoys our, our public land. As you can hear, some of these questions are very tough to answer. We don't know the best options, so all we can do is educate the best we can. And to see different resources available to minimize impact and always be ready for anything outside, go to the show notes at summitforwellness.com slash 126. Also, if you find this information valuable and important, please share it around. We want to make sure as many people as possible are educated. And if you liked this episode, then head on over to your podcast app and leave a quick rating as it really helps the show out. Next week, I have Dr. Angela Cortal on the show. Let's go learn who she is. I am here with Dr. Angela Cortal. Hey, Dr. Angela, what is one unique thing about you that most people don't know? I am super into mushrooms. I love foraging mushrooms in the wild. I'm trying my hand at cultivating some oyster mushrooms and having variable success. And uh, my living room is, or my uh, dining room is plastered in mushroom posters.
And these are like edible uh, mushrooms or are these um, some spiritual trip type mushrooms? Uh, so the, the posters are from David Aurora. If anyone is into mushrooms, they will know that that name. And uh, let's see, I have one. One of the posters is all culinary mushrooms. One is medicinal mushrooms and one is poisonous and psychotropic mushrooms. And as far as what I collect out in the wild, um, I'm out in rural Oregon uh, in the foothills of the coastal mountains. And out here we have chanterelles uh, coming up in a couple months in the fall. And then we go out to the coast for uh, bull eats and um, gosh, what else? Uh, lobster mushrooms. But I'm not I'm not adventurous. I want to stay around and not harm myself. So I have a small number of mushrooms <laughs> that I can identify and will actually collect and bring home to eat. <laughs> Yeah, I've never gotten into uh, mushroom foraging because I know that one uh, wrong mistake could be very bad. Uh, yes, yes. And we've actually had mushrooms growing on our property that go by the common name of destroying angel. So, yeah, you, you know, there's some not great ones out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, what will we be learning about in our interview together? How joint pain is not just pain coming from your joints. Uh, where How my approach to joint pain is that you really need to look at the whole person systemically and figure out all the different factors and influences that can actually shift a joint that is currently degenerating into a process that is regenerating. And what are your favorite foods or nutrients that you think everyone should get more of in their diet? Um, I'm a big meat eater. I love just having a big steak. <laughs> uh, and, and so that's, uh, meat, meat and eggs are my primary sources of protein. I think, uh, protein is a very important nutrient getting some healthy sources of fat. So not just super lean meats and a low fat diet. I am, I'm not of that mindset. I think that well, I know that you need to have some good, uh, good, healthy sources of fat on board to build up your physical body, to build up your hormones. Um, so getting some, uh, let's see, avocado and egg and olive oil are probably the most common ones that, that I use. And, and also that collagen is really important. Uh, collagen has its own unique amino acid structure and is very integral in the building blocks of our cartilage, of our joint capsules, ligaments, tendons, all of that, and actually bone tissue as well, is more percentage collagen fibers than anything else. So, so even us omnivorous people in the U.S. tend to not eat much collagen in our diet. We think that like pork knuckles and chicken feet are icky. Um, <laughs> so it takes being a little bit in uh, intentional to get to get some collagen in your diet. And what are your top three health tips for anyone who wants to improve their overall wellness? Uh, see how much good clean water you're taking in. Like, let's just start with making sure that you're not dehydrated. Um, how is your digestion going? If you have problems, let's figure out if we can sort that out. You need to be eliminating everything that your body is trying to be eliminating. And are you moving? Are you moving a little bit every day? Are you having fun with that? Do you like that? We need to find ways all of us do to, to move through life, to be more active. Uh, a lot of our, our daily work and otherwise sort of Interests can be very inactive if we let them. So we need to counter that intentionally and, and increase the movement just in our day-to-day -day lives. 
To learn about more causes for chronic pain, make sure to listen next week. So until then, keep climbing to the peak of your health.